T-Mobile went from 5 people in the early 90s to now over 75,000 employees with a market cap of over $180 billion. But did you know that they once had to file for bankruptcy and its co-founder had to wait in a freezing room for weeks begging their vendors for money? Hey everyone, this is Rick and welcome back to the Seed and Startup Journey, the entrepreneurship podcast sharing the origin stories of amazing founders and their companies in under 20 minutes. I'm super excited today because we'll be chatting with the co-founder of T-Mobile USA, Alan Bender. This is one of the coolest startup journeys I've heard of, and not only would Alan share his success and how he got there, he also talks about some of his darkest moments, and of course, there would be advice to aspiring entrepreneurs. So without further ado, let's jump right in. Hey Alan, thank you so much for coming onto our podcast today. You are the co-founder of a telecommunications startup that later became T-Mobile USA. And to explore your startup journey, I want to go all the way back to the beginning. I know that you were practicing law right after graduating from WashU and Duke. Have you known back then that you were one day going to start a business? That's a really good question, Rick. And the answer is no, that really was not foremost in my mind. I practiced law in the corporate securities, merger and acquisition, finance mm -hmm. area. So I liked business, but I never thought I'd be a founder of a company. Got it. So then how did you go from that to starting a telecommunications company? Like, did you have, did you come up with this idea or? No, oh, I was introduced to it. I went out with a client of mine from my law firm in New York that asked me to join them on the legal slash business side of things at that company. So we moved to San Francisco. While out in the Bay Area, a colleague of mine from the same law firm in New York, Kay Scholler, had also moved to San Francisco. We were having brunch one morning and he said to me, a couple of guys just walked into my office and they're talking about starting up a cellular phone company. The things they're going to need are exactly your skill set. Would you be interested in meeting them? And I did meet with them, liked what I heard about the industry kind of envisioned to some degree its growth. I underestimated its growth, but I knew it was going to grow. And I went home to Joyce and I said, this opportunity excites me. We've got a two and a half year old and now a two month old. Are you comfortable with my exiting a little bit more of mainstream legal practice and going to this kind of out of left field startup? Joyce was supportive and said that if it made me happy, she wanted me to go do something that uh, I was enthused about. So with her support, because she was the one at home principally with a two and a half year old and a two month old, and I was going to be going around the clock with this startup. I jumped in uh, in 1989 into the what today you would call the wireless world. Yeah. And when we were chatting last time, you mentioned how you and your co-founders basically have very complementary skill sets. Like you were the business law expert and then uh, your other co-founders are really good at engineering or finance. So I know that a lot of startup founders have kind of trouble finding a good co-founder. Do you think for you, like, was it all by just luck? I think the core guys, the first four or five of us, I'll, I'll attribute it to just good fortune that we... <laughs> all found themselves drawn to the business and all had different skills. Mm -hmm. you, you, you exactly touched on that. Once we got the train on the tracks, then we went out and every next hire for the next 
dozen years was very job specific. Mm-hmm. What do we lack? What do we need? Who do we want to bring on board? I was fortunate in who became my partner. Having said that, it is critical that your partners do have complementary skill sets because otherwise to have two engineers start a company and nobody has finance or corporate uh, background or understanding would be um, du- somewhat duplicative. Mm-hmm. You, you, you really do need to, as early as is feasible, expand the skill set sitting around at the, at the HQ table. And I know that, you know, startups are difficult, right? Like I was chatting with uh, the co-founder, Ron Tomatoes, a few weeks ago, and he told me that he had to sleep under his office desk for months during the dot-com crash. So I'm just wondering, like for you, uh, can you maybe share with us some of your, you know, the most challenging times or some of your failures along your journey? I could probably rattle off 10. (laughs) Probably in 1990, the U.S. went through a lot of changes. One was the real estate market collapsed. And as a result, they changed all the banking laws and limited the loans that could be made to startups. I'm oversimplifying, but that was the net effect. Mm -hmm. So all of a sudden, through no shortcoming of ours, capital that had been available dried up. The junk bond market, which was funding a lot of early startups at the time, it collapsed. And thirdly, we went to war in the in the Mideast, mm-hmm. the first Persian Gulf War. So we were at war, banks weren't lending money, and the bond market wasn't available. So here we were with this business that we built based on a huge appetite for capital. Well, all of a sudden, the sources of capital dried up. We went to some of our vendors who we were buying the towers and the radios from and said, listen, if you want us to survive, we need you to finance all our acquisitions. We need you to provide us capital. And I remember sitting, our primary vendor was a company called Novotel in Calgary, Canada. And I remember spending weeks in the winter sitting in a freezing cold conference room for eight hours with nobody walking in to talk to me when it's like minus 50 out and howling. And I'm sitting there going, there's not even anyone offering me coffee. They would put me in a room and let me sit for eight hours. You know, I can remember that vividly, literally begging them for enough capital to make payroll, telling them if I don't go home with a check, I have to lay off the whole team. (laughs) And all your business with us dries up. The conversations were challenging. You know, we had a team of 40 or 50 people (laughs) and I knew they were relying on paychecks. They had families. That was something I wasn't prepared. No one trained me to do that. But as I've told other people, when your back is against the wall, um, that's when you become the best negotiator you can. Because you know what? There is nothing behind you. You feel that wall behind you? It's like going back for a fly ball. You better jump. There's, if you feel that wall behind you, you've run out of spaces to run. I'm just really curious, like what kept you going? Like, Because I know it's, it sounds super stressful. Like, Why not just you know, throw in the towel and just give up? I really believe that, A, we had a great team. B, that cell phones were going to become part of the American lifestyle. Again, underestimating by how much right. they became. And wanted to give, I just grew up giving it my best shot. Thinking what Joyce had said, that if this thing fails, you go back to a big law firm and practice law and you'll be a little wiser for it. So I just wasn't going to give up. We were fortunate in that 
we met with a private equity firm in San Francisco called Hellman and Freeman. And I want to give them all the credit in the world, Hellman and Freeman. Well, we went to them with this strange startup with cell phones that at that point were the big bricks, mm-hmm. you know, the Motorola and said, listen, we need capital to grow. Would you be interested? A couple of the younger partners really liked the business plan and agreed to fund us subject to our filing chapter 11 mm-hmm. bankruptcy so that we would clean up all of the liabilities so that when we came out, we would have a very clean balance sheet. Now, that was in March of 1992. Mm-hmm. Now we had a running head start. And from then, everything accelerated quickly up uh, up the ramp. The first 27 months or so were very shaky. Yeah. And I want to talk a little bit about the acceleration. Like, correct me if I'm wrong here, but uh, I believe your company, which was called Western Wireless back then, went public. Uh, and then later on, you guys also spun out VoiceStream, which also went on NASDAQ. And I think the most exciting was probably in around 2000 when Deutsche Telekom, I'm not sure if I'm pronouncing that correctly, you are, but you they, are. they offered to buy your company for, I believe, $52 billion. Yes. That is a good summary of eight years uh, from 92 to 2000. Probably the biggest 10 telecommunications companies in the world came looking to buy. And the reason was the concept of global communications was first being advanced. It used to be your phone, the United States, if I flew to Taiwan, it wouldn't work. I had to get a phone when I was in Taiwan. If I went to London, if I went to Paris, if I went to Berlin. So major telecom companies wanted to bring a global seamless service to their customers. And in order to do so, they'd have to have the United States as one of the parties. And we used a technology called Global Systems Mobile, GSM, which was the standard in both Europe and Asia, except Japan. Companies like what's today Verizon and AT&T Wireless, they used a US standard So when the worldwide GSM players said, well, we want to buy a footprint of the United States, bring us all the GSM carriers in the U.S., there was one because we had bought up every single market. We used our stock as currency. It's one of the reasons we went public. We never had much capital, but now we could pay with it with stock. So when France Telecom, Vodafone, Deutsche Telekom, Telecom España, Telecom Italia, all were interested in a global service that was GSM. And they asked to line up all the GSM US players. There was one. So we got them to bid against each other. So so after that buyout, like were you basically, you know, financially set for life? Like did you still have to find a job? No, I, I would I would say we, we had a philosophy all along, which was we were all just gonna take whatever salary was necessary to feed our kids and pay the rent or the mortgage. I got paid a lot less cash compared to if I had stayed in Wall Street and worked in a law firm, 5X, 10X less, but we paid ourselves in equity. So um, yes, as a matter of fact, several interesting conversations with the executives of Deutsche Telekom in the middle of the deal when they started to get their, they knew what the company was worth and it was worth about what they paid. They were stunned to find out how much of the stock management owned. Because in Germany, 
they all got paid a lot of cash and they had no equity in Deutsche Telekom. Mm. It was all pretty much owned by the German government, Deutsche Telekom. They thought we were the same. They find out, you mean that much goes to you? How are we ever going to get you to stay and work? <laughs> and we said, you're not. <laughs> and they said, well, we really need you for at least a year. We said, well, for a year, we can, we can put up with someone else running the shop. But yes, it was far and away enough to retire. I was 51, and that's still pretty young. I don't. That might sound old to you, but 51 is still pretty young. And um, we retired for about six months. And uh, I will tell you quite bluntly, it was the worst six months of my career. I hated it. You know, I went from going 100 miles an hour with two companies to dead stop. My kids thought it was strange. I mean, they were still in high school and they would come home and I'd be here in my office and they'd say, uh, what's up, Dad? Everything all right? I say, everything's great. We sold our two companies. Okay, so you're going to be around all of that? <laughs> I said, yeah, I guess. Anyway, we decided the same core group, hey, we need to do something. Mm -hmm. So that's how we set up Trilogy Partnership, which we can get into whenever you'd like to talk. If you would ask me what was the toughest part of my career, the six months I was retired. <laughs> I wanted to also... Um, ask because as you mentioned you know you later started trilogy equity partners and so like after so many years uh, of experience as an entrepreneur and also on the investment side like have you noticed any uh, common traits or skill sets between you know the really successful entrepreneurs that you've seen worked with or maybe invested in it's a great question if we had the absolute magic formula it would probably help us avoid bad investments and only do great <laughs> ones well i'll say this i think if you ask any one of us a trilogy What's the singular most important uh, ingredient to an outcome? It's going to be management. Mm -hmm. It's not going to be the widget. Everybody's mm -hmm. got a great widget. A great management team can take a decent widget and make it successful. A mediocre management team can take a great widget and drive it into the ground. So if I was to say, I would say first, what do we look for? great management, great entrepreneurs. Your obvious follow-up question would be, well, what makes a great entrepreneur? I guess we might all have slightly different opinions on it. I would say I'm struck positively by, look, they all, our entrepreneurs are all typically young, high energy, have been very successful at very recognizable worldwide companies. Mm -hmm. The Microsofts, the Cisco's, the Amazon's, the Google's, the Facebook's, the T-Mobile's. And now they want to do their own thing. Okay, so that's our prototype. In their 30s, very successful with a big company. Well, what they don't know is what they don't know. I mean, that sounds kind of counterintuitive, but it's very true. I mean, when they work at Amazon and someone gives them a project, okay, figure out the next great way to make our delivery services more efficient. Great. They never had to worry about hiring. They never had to worry about raising capital. They never had to worry about accounting. They were tasked with an important project. And presumably they did well enough that they said, you know what? I'm really good. I want to go out and do my own thing. You know, I'm going to go do a um, logistics company because now I did logistics at Amazon. So that would be a very typical startup. And that's great. But I like when I talk to these young folks and say, um, tell me about your experience in hiring. Oh, I'll just call my, you know, my friends will be able to recommend people. People are going to be flooding us with their resumes. Hiring's not that easy. You got to make the right hires. 
going to your very first question, mm -hmm. how do you form that first core of partners? How are you going to raise capital? Do you know when to do a friends and family round, when to do a seed round, when to do a series A? They'll tell you yes, but you dig a little deeper. Of course not. They haven't done it. That's okay. I'm impressed with those who are willing to say, there's a lot I have to learn. I know what I'm good at and I know what I don't know. And I'm going to have to bring on board. So can you trilogy help us expand our management team? And that's part of what we view our role as, as an investor. We'll also bring people to the table to help them because that serves everybody well. When I get the, I know it all, because I'm a whiz bang guy who's never got anything less than an A plus on any grade I would got, I um, have my doubts about how they're going to handle the first day when everything goes wrong. And there will be a day where everything goes wrong. So what's the common theme? The maturity to know I need to bring a strong team around me with widespread skills. And I need to learn from them about things I don't know about. I would say that's the a common thread. Is that does that make sense? Yeah, yeah definitely. And so, in one more year, I, you probably know uh, that I'll be graduating from WashU. So, kind of a selfish question that I want to ask now that you have, you're here with me is, if you could go back in time and give you know the twenty year old Alan an advice, what would you say to him? I'm going to give you kind of two competing answers. Okay. I think college and college years are a great time to experiment intellectually, socially, emotionally, across the board. Obviously, fine-tune your strengths, but try a broad-brush approach to learning. I mean, I really do feel like very little of what I do in my career or have done in my career had anything to do with specifically what I learned in a WashU classroom. Russian history was fascinating. German film was fascinating. Biology was fascinating, but how often do I use any of those in my daily life? Zero. Mm -hmm. But learning how to socialize, how to time management, how to balance um, competing interests, how to handle stress, all those are part of growing up now. So I would encourage you to do that. Having said that, I think one of the real strengths, what you need to grow is focus. You know, once you grab on to a train track or build that tra track, you're going to need to focus and not get distracted. There's so many competing details. There's always going to be problems. Nothing's ever going to go as smoothly as you like, but you have to stay focused on the goal. What am I trying to accomplish here? What do I want this business to look like in two or three years? So that's why I say about competing in the, in the, in the academic side of things grow as much as you can. Figure out how am I going to handle things? Once you actually jump into the saddle, you got to focus <laughs> unrelentingly. It bothers me when I meet a seven, if I'm interviewing a high school kid and they say, I know I want to do this, but honestly, what in your 17 years <laughs> makes you so certain that that's what you want to do when you haven't even opened the textbooks of five or six different classes yet? So. I'm glad I took that approach. I'm also glad because I had six or seven different departments reporting to me mm -hmm. because there was only five of us in a company that's now 100,000 employees. So a lot was coming in the door. It was very easy to get distracted by something 
that when you step out the door and look back at it, wasn't a priority. Stack them in order of importance. Mm-hmm. And when you get down to number 10, I don't want to hear about it because you only have so much time. You better make sure you hit the ball out of the park on one, two, and three. So focus. Got it. That's awesome. So to kind of wrap up the interview, I prepared a quick game. Uh, it's called This or That. So the first one, teleportation or flight? Flight. Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos? That is a really good one. Musk. AT&T or Verizon? Neither. T-Mobile? <laughs> what about Brooklyn Nets or Oklahoma Thunder? Brooklyn Nets. Yeah, because I, I read somewhere that you were once a part owner of the Seattle Supersonics. And it got sold out from under us to the Oklahoma City Group, notwithstanding a contract that said it would stay in Seattle. Mm. And I'll broadcast that to the world. They lied. <laughs> Therefore, you could have given me 28 other teams. I would have said any of those other teams. Brooklyn Nets, <laughs> fine. Gotcha. All right. And then this last one, Wash U or Duke? Wash U socially, student body, Duke basketball. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think anyone really watches like Wash U basketball. So. <laughs> but I think my Wash U environment was um, unmistakably great. At Duke, I was in graduate school. It was more about the classes mm-hmm. and the basketball. Got it. Awesome. So this is it for today's interview. Thank you so much for coming on again, Alan. And I wish you the best of luck and stay safe as well. You too. Stay safe. I hope you enjoyed this episode. I really did not expect a company like T-Mobile to have filed for bankruptcy in the past. Some of my takeaways from chatting with Alan include looking for complementary skill sets when finding co-founders, the common trait between successful entrepreneurs of knowing what they're good at and what they need help with, as well as Alan's advice of exploring, but also focusing. And before you go, if you like our weekly interviews summarized in one minute startup droplets delivered to your inbox, make sure to head over to our website and subscribe. I'll drop the link in the descriptions as well. With that, let's grow our seed of innovation and creativity together. I'll see you next time.